This is Framework Leadership. I'm Ken Dingle, and you're listening to Framework Leadership, a podcast about how to bring your personal life and organization to the next level. Today, I have the awesome privilege of sitting down with Frank Beeler. I'll tell you, after more than five years of building family ministry strategies at Elevation Church, Frank expanded his scope to work on systems and strategies uh, to to do one thing, to help people with their organizations. Today, he uh, is a CEO of Phase Family Centers and Executive Director of the Leadership Development at Orange. He's also the host of the Discovering Leadership podcast with Frank Beeler. Frank, hey, thanks for joining us today on Framework Leadership. Man, I'm excited to be here. I've been learning from you over these last few months and excited to have a conversation today. Well, one of the things uh, we're always interested in is how you know successful people got to where they are today. And, and I look at your journey, uh, especially your professional journey, and I, uh, you know, I see that you've spent many years in the business world before you actually shifted kind of into into ministry. Uh, walk me through that, but but actually, let's let's start at the beginning. Where you know where'd you grow up? What was family life like? And and that experience. Yeah, so I grew up in a very small town in East Tennessee. One one red light in the town, super small town from a very broken family. Um, we've just navigated a lot and kind of went through the motions for many, many, many years. And it was just, it was more about making it through the next day. And there wasn't a lot of strategy around the next week, the next month, the next mm. year. And so oftentimes, you know, the utilities would get cut off because it didn't quite make it to the end of the month. And we navigated that. My mom got remarried, and that was real challenging for me in that when she got married, I had a relationship with my mom. My mom had a relationship with this new man in our life, but he and I didn't really have a relationship. And so I floated along, worrying a lot, and uh, had the opportunity to really make a lot of mistakes, but just didn't for some reason. I think God kept me out of a lot of mess, um, despite the fact I didn't have a lot of structure. And it wasn't until I was 17 years old that somebody invited me to church, which is really weird in East Tennessee. You would think growing up in the Bible Belt, that would be common, but I had just never been invited before until I was 17. And it was there that I gave my life to Christ, uniquely enough, in a small Baptist church during an interim pastoral position or, or season when nothing's supposed to happen in the church, right? And it was mm-hmm. in that season where nothing was happening, the church was struggling, that I gave my life to Christ and started a really cool journey. How, how did you begin to discover, uh, you know, we're all about at Southeastern University, uh, divine design, how you discover, develop kind of the way you're wired and your passions, your experiences. How did you begin that journey um, to step into the business world and, and begin to be involved with, yeah. with that? Honestly, my wife's, my wife now her father, when we first met, I was a punk rocker in a Christian band at wow. 18 years old. And he's like, oh, who's this guy dating my daughter? And what's this guy's deal? Um, he saw something in me. Hmm. And he was willing to say, way before we were in this for the long haul, he started mentoring me and started just speaking into some of my capacity and that there was more. Like the win for my life all growing up was if I could get a C, everybody was happy. And suddenly he was like, no, you can you can do more, be more. You have some communication gifts and skill sets. Let's, let's lean in on those. And he's the one that spoke into that and gave me room to kind of flesh those things out. So, so you, you got involved in business. Um, how, how, what, talk to me a little bit about the transition into ministry and working with family ministries. Yeah. So I graduated from the university of Tennessee with a business degree and got in insurance Mm -hmm. and became the president of the 
lar- youngest president of the largest agency in the U.S. So it was over 47 states, this large retail firm. Uh, it was a whirlwind, nine years. It was an awesome opportunity. Um, but it was in the midst of that that we acquired a couple companies in Charlotte, North Carolina. And my wife and I decided we'd take an adventure and we would move to Charlotte for just a couple of years. We had built our dream home in Tennessee. We were going to go back. That's where our family was. Uh, but when we got there, we needed a church to serve in and we found Elevation Church. And about six months in, they asked us to come on staff and we flat out said, no way. Uh, financially, it made no sense at all. And we didn't feel called to vocational ministry. And maybe... Maybe three, four months later, my wife and I both independently came to this conclusion that while we didn't feel called to vocational ministry, we didn't want finances to be a reason to say no. And so um, we adjusted our standard of living. We sold our cars, got what I would deem normal cars, and and got a, a little more normal home, modest home, and continued on to the point where these lifestyle adjustments, the owner of our company thought I was either doing drugs or gambling <laughs> away all our money. He was like, what's what's going on? I know what you make and you're not living to that lifestyle. Um, but we just didn't want that to be a way to say no in the future. And nine months later, I got a promotion. And in the midst of that promotion at work, Elevation said, no, 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 no. Now's the time. You're coming on staff. Mm. And my wife uh, was a stay-at-home mom at that time. She came on staff. Together, we took this massive pay cut and this huge shift in our life and accepted a position as a campus pastor and then rolled into family ministry. Yeah. And when you think about that decision, I mean, um, there are a lot of decisions like that that we face, you know, that seem like, is that really the right kind of decision? And and a lot of times those decisions are very courageous. And what do you think helped you to be courageous to, to take that risk, if you will, to go ahead and take the plunge into, into that call? Pretty early on, I had a couple of leaders that really taught me how to be grateful for whatever season I was in. Mm. And, and I think understanding that I'm grateful for this season, but this season isn't my season, it's God's and what He's doing, put me in a position, really did for our family, where we had a posture of truly, God, what's next for us? Mm. And that may look very different. And I think that that perspective came out of a position of gratitude, mm. of going, wait, we're grateful for That's this. Good. This has been such a cool season, but it may not always be like this. And so for us to adjust our standard of living, if I can be honest, when we adjust our standard of living to you know, a, a pastor's income and, and just a different season altogether... That was more than I honestly expected to make when I was a kid growing up. I just wanted stability. I wasn't wanting to be wealthy. I was wanting to be stable. And so to to be at a place where still all my kids are provided for, we had four, three kids at the time. And so they're provided for, we're doing fine. That's an awesome thing. Mm. Now, talk to me a little bit about Orange. How did that come about? Yeah, that was a huge transition for us because along the journey at Elevation, we started as a campus pastor, and then it was over kids, then kids and students, and then kids, students, adults, small groups, and part of the creative staff for the whole church. It's a lot of responsibility, and we fell in love with the church and fell in love with Pastor Stephen and the team, and we thought we'd be there forever. And God started to do something in our hearts specifically around reaching millennial families mm-hmm. and how we could do that and how we could help the church do that because it felt like everybody was talking about it, but nobody was making adjustments or changes to reach millennials, and they were attending way less frequently, even at Elevation, this awesome, cool, great church that's growing not necessarily in the space of millennial families. And so along the way, 
there was conversations with Orange and this idea of Faye's Family Center, and it all kind of came together to, for God to tell us. And I really think it was a season where God's like, hey, you can stay where you're at and be blessed by that and do great things through the kingdom of God, through elevation. Here's another avenue that you appear to be passionate about. And I think there was this fork in the road, but it was two parallel paths where mm. God's like, hey, pursue either one of these. You're wired for both. You're loving both. But what if there is something here? And somewhere along the way, I just I had some great ministry leaders that kept posing questions to me to say, Who's going to figure this out? Who's going to push out and do this? And through very, very difficult season of prayer and wrestling with this, we decided that it would be us. Um, we're still really connected with Elevation, and we love the family there. But it was a hard transition for us, for sure. Another one, another hard transition for our family. When you when you look at your experiential journey um, and all the different experiences that you've had in your career, uh, when, it, when it comes to biz, the business world and then the ministry world, uh, from a leadership perspective, how are those two worlds different, but yet very much the same? Yeah, I think in ministry, we err a lot with staffing and the way we lead large or any organization. We are a lot on grace, which we should, um, but somewhere along the way, we can get lazy in ministry of providing structure and clarity of responsibilities. And yet in the in the corporate world, that's the opposite, right? There right, is no right, grace and it's all right, structure. Right. And so finding a way to put those two together, I've found that most people really appreciate clarity in their role and responsibility, whether it be ministry or the workplace. And then when you cut them a little slack and you help them navigate when they make mistakes, it really sets you up for success. And so I learned from this corporate world give clear direction, structure, really reinforce that, being kind of multi-site, all these locations across the country, and now going into a ministry position where we're working with lots of churches, lots of locations. Can we provide that same structure, but reinforce it with the grace that you're not always going to get it right and we're in your corner. Let's navigate out of that and put expectations moving forward. Yeah. I love your systems thinking approach and how, how you you tackle that. Uh, at, at, at Elevation Church, I mean, you saw explosive growth there. What were some of the strategies that helped you to create kind of that contextual relevance that would keep growth happening in that organization or that ministry? You know, Pastor Stephen, people know him as a very, very good communicator and leader and preacher. He is an incredible leader of leaders. He really is. And you see that in the organization. But the reality is, when you think about it from the idea of pressure, systems and structures, when they're weak, when you put more pressure on them, they break, right? And so what we started to do is learn if we really want God to bless us this way, what do we need to do in preparation for that? And as it's happening, and what we found was that we needed to run to the weak spots and start doing corrections there. And those may be significant changes in the way we structured, but it was in those weak spots in our organization by shoring those up along the way, uh, literally repairing the ship as it's moving, we found that we were able to sustain the growth. What we find that a lot of people do is they try to scale and assume that the weak spots will only stay a little weak. You know, that's just a little weak area for us. But we all know as you put more weight and pressure on something, a small weak spot can become very significant. And so Pastor taught us not to scale and increase and multiply those weaknesses. We needed to fix them. Yeah. And a lot of, lot of growth um, is dependent on the people that collaborate together. And, and work uh, work as a team. How do you how do you build 
teams that understand context well? You know, uh, in my podcast, I actually shared, and it's the most downloaded one. It was the biggest mistake I've ever made at Elevation. Hmm. And when I look back, what I tended to do when it was time to run hard and trying to get people ready for the next season, I'm charismatic and personable enough where I could get everybody excited to run through the wall and run through the next season. But sometimes I didn't slow down enough to go, what are the steps it's going to take to get there for your family? Mm-hmm. You know, what's going to be hard about this in this next season if we're doing this crazy revival or we're adding four campuses in a year? What, what does that look right, like right. very practically? And so I think that I had to learn over time to add more of that practical element to the teaching to give them what they needed. Tell us a little bit about your work with uh, Faze Family Centers. Oh, yeah. So that that's an exciting project. It's just underway. Faze Family Center is our attempt to solve a couple problems, really for the church in a, in a very missional way, um, but it meets a great need. It's a for-profit company mm-hmm. that's doing two things. How can we engage with millennial families for the church and set that up for success? And we recognize that giving in the local church is going down. And so it's like, okay, millennial families have really high standards. They want great facilities for their kids and their students. And so that requires lots of giving, but then they're attending less. And so we were like, well, what what do millennial families take faith out of it for a minute? What are they looking for? And what we found is that one of the top five things on any list, Forbes, Fast Company, you read about it, one of the five pressure points for millennial families is preschool. They want the best preschool. In fact, my kids for years went to a little house down the street, a little old lady. She's an awesome lady. She took care of my kids. My kids came home dirty every day. (laughs) That's actually not acceptable for millennial families, even though my kids were fine and I think they're on a good track. Um, There's something about the standards and expectations. And you can't tweet a picture of that, right? You can't Instagram my kid getting picked up and there's no grass out front, right? They, They have this standard. And so we're like, well, the, the marketplace would say that there's a huge need for, for preschool. And so we're like, what if we built a preschool, 400-plus kid preschool and after-school program? Well, if we did that and we changed the way programming and we taught about emotional EQ and IQ and we understand what's really going on with families and come alongside them just from a preschool space, not faith-based, along the way, wouldn't it be really cool if we added a 700-seat auditorium on the side of the building, because then we could do family programming, and we realized that we just built a church. We built a church on a for-profit model that wouldn't it be cool if a church just rented from us on the weekend, and they didn't have to do massive giving campaigns, and they could use their funds to really reach and connect families in their community and be a little more missional-minded and not feel like so much resources tied up in a facility. So Faze Family Center is trying to meet that need of engaging millennial families and meeting a need in the local church. Why is it important? Uh, you know, one of, I think probably one of the key ingredients to, to connecting is that physical space, how it looks, how it's built out in a way that um, kind of impacts the visionary drive. How, why is physical space so important in, in the sense of uh, connecting with families and communities? If you think about it, families are always looking for something to do. Millennial families are very unique in this and that Forbes magazine just released an article within the last year where they said moms feel more pressure to be perfect than ever before, thanks to social media, right. and dads feel more pressure to be present. 
And yet in the space of their home, they feel like they're not doing enough. You can only mm -hmm. share so many pictures of those experiences. Right. So you got to go somewhere and do something. And so if we can create a space where they can learn how to play and interact with each other, and it's a great space they can go to that doesn't cost a lot of money. It's not the major experience. You still got to go to Disney World and have great memories. But what do you do on the normal weekends, right? What do you do in the evenings when you're just trying to create a moment? And so finding ways to leverage your space, whether it be a church space or a, a space and just a business that's trying to reach families to make room for them to interact and say, it's okay to play together here. And in fact, not only is it okay, let me tell you what you should be doing. So almost like stations, some way to say, here's what you do in this moment. As you think about pushing new curves, what what are what are some of the the dreams for, for Faye's family over the next five years? Well, Five years, we'll, we'll hopefully be on development of locations seven, eight, and nine. We're mm -hmm. breaking ground on the first one now, but we have a goal before I retire to do 100. And wow. so we really think that it can serve our nation really well and change the landscape of preschool. The other thing that we hope, we're partnering with some organizations now that are reimagining how play can happen with families. Because let's think about it. So when I had my, my little girl was two, three years old, I felt like I needed to do a daddy-daughter date night, right? That's a thing. Well, as a two or three-year-old, all I knew to do was take her and get her ice cream give her too much ice cream because I give her double what my mom would give her, right? Yeah, you know, so right. I give her all this ice cream. Now <laughs> she's hopped up on sugar and I have no idea what to do with her next, right? And so it's like, how can we teach parents how to have these moments where they feel like they're winning and they're having this great engagement, but when the kid doesn't respond the way they expect, how do we help them navigate out of that to go, that's okay too, because that's a normal kid. Right. And so creating a space where there's room to play, but also room for parents to realize that their kids' behavior and the moments that they picture are going to be picture perfect aren't always going to be that way, and that's okay as well. Let's talk a, a little bit about cultural shifts. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lot of people talking about how the idea of families being redefined today in, in culture. What are some of the shifts that you are seeing um, that you have to absolutely make sure you're hitting yeah, I think at the end of the day, we've got to make sure that kids are taken care of and we've got to position them in such a way to say, hey, we know that parents are going to have about 3,000 disposable hours a year with their kids. And we've got to come alongside them and partner them with them, no matter what their space is, no matter uh, what their definition of family is. You know, one unique thing about millennial families is they're actually having kids later than any generation in history. After the age of 30, it's never happened before. That's the average. They're in a totally different season at the time they have kids. Right. And many of those, almost up to 50% now, are having kids before they're married. Mm. And so it's like, okay, well, we can either take a position to go, no, there's this nuclear family idea, and this is the only way it is, and this is how it works. Well, that's not bad. That idea of marriage and, and a beautiful family is awesome. But the people that are out there that are navigating parenting are from all walks of life and look very, very different. And so if we're not finding a way to build a bridge with families, we're going to miss out. And I think the best way to do that is through their kid, not assuming that they're defined as a family a certain way first, but say, no, your kid matters. Like, let's right. start there right. and then let's navigate everything. And speaking of defining family, uh, for our listeners who are thinking about starting uh, a family, what, what, you know, those who want to start, what do they need to be thinking about right now before they actually bring 
children into their lives and home. It's not wise to parent alone. And yet so many families today, they because our, our culture, you move city to city, maybe your grandparents, you know, your parents, their grandparents aren't nearby. It's not wise to not invite other voices into the room to interact with your kid, to speak in your kid, to reinforce the same values. My um, 15-year-old, he plays football and basketball. He's this big kid. Five years ago when he was first starting, I would stand on the sideline at a basketball game and yell at him, just raise your hands on defense, just put your hands up. And he would ignore me. And then the coach would say, Micah, get your hands up real casually. And his hands would go up in the air. And it was just like this instant moment. Sometimes you need other people saying the same thing because it carries a different weight. And so I think very early on, we have to find those people that we trust to speak into families and start looking for those people now. You know, I think one of the issues that uh, a lot of leaders face is how do you manage the tension uh, between their careers and their families? And a lot of people talk about sacrifice and making the sacrifices necessary uh, to accomplish their goals and, and, and calling. In your experience, do leaders really need to sacrifice anything that has to do with family uh, if they want to have a bigger impact? I think sacrifice is such a heavy word, right? Sacrifice right. is death. We're, we're giving something up. And so I think that there are tensions that have to be managed for sure. I think we can be really responsible. I know that other people that podcast with you have talked about, hey, if you're writing a book, you just get up early so it doesn't affect your kids. They're not even aware you did it. You're the one that's putting in the extra time, energy, and effort. My wife and I are both very much drivers and entrepreneurial, and there's always opportunity. But I will tell you this. I think, and I literally wrote a book about this, I think this idea of pursuing balance between your workplace, your life, and your mission is a flawed pursuit. I haven't found people that have found great balance, and they get frustrated because they feel like they're always losing because they're creating this tension between the balance side of personal life, no, I need to be home at a certain time, or workspace. I think we have to look at it, and the way I approach it is, we sometimes have a personal calendar, a work calendar, maybe a ministry or a volunteering mm-hmm. calendar. We only have one life. And so if we don't reconcile those together and talk about the realities of the tensions, and I think where we're flawed in our pursuit, if balance was truly a routine, we have our routine week and this is what we do, I think we could all be balanced. But things every single week throw that routine out of balance and makes it not work for us. So right. it's like, what do we do to plan ahead for those things that we know are going to come up that are going to throw us off balance? And how can we address those things now to be ready so we're not completely thrown off course? How, how have you managed this tension and created balance in your own personal life? Yeah. So I've given up on creating balance altogether and just said, okay, if that's not going to work, you know, if that's not how it's going to happen. How can it happen? What my wife and I did was we sat down and said, what are the things in a given week or a given month that tend to come up? We don't know when they're going to come up next, but they just tend to happen. Whether it be a kid gets sick, we have four kids now. So whether a kid gets sick, whether it's a sporting event that demands more time, energy, what if it's, we've got to be two places at once. How do we do those things? How do we manage them? So what we did is we made a list of the exceptions, the things, once again, we know they're going to happen. We don't know when they're going to happen next. And we build a plan around how we're going to address those. We have a phrase we use, when this, then that. And we, our kids know this and everything. When this happens, 
Then we do this. A quick example, at Elevation for the longest time, my wife and I did our final interviews. So you go through this rigorous interview process. And the last one was an interview at night with me and my wife and the other couple, the other person, just to kind of check and see if they're crazy, let them ask questions, anything like that to finalize that interview. Well, that was always another night away from our family. And I tended to, in ministry, call home. And my response was, hey, Layla, my little girl, I just want to let you know, we've got an interview tonight. I'm sorry. And suddenly it put this calling, this thing that I felt responsible for in between me and my family. Mm. It's like, how do you navigate that? And at some point, I'm sorry doesn't feel like it carries enough weight when you do it enough, right? When it's another thing that throws things out of whack. So if you take a win this, then that approach, you said, well, what could we do differently where it doesn't feel like the kids lose when we do an interview? We don't know when the next one is, but one's coming soon. And we decided, why don't we take our kids to the same restaurant they sit at a separate table, and they get to order an appetizer and a dessert, which they never get to do. So that's like a really big <laughs> yeah. deal, right? And so you're, if you have a family, you're in and out as quickly as possible before they know what hit them. And so suddenly, I call home and say, hey, guys, we got an interview tonight. And they're like, yes, this is awesome. Now they're looking forward to it. Instead of me feeling like somehow God in this role that he's given me has put me in this place where I've got to choose between my family. And so I've found that there are more solutions that we can create to keep our family healthy and our calling and our responsibilities in line and in a healthy place than I think we realize. I think we act like the things we know they're coming, but we don't know when they're coming next as though they're a surprise and we've got to stop doing that. Yeah. One final question before we uh, move into the, the uh, lightning round. The art of self-leadership. How do you lead yourself? especially as it relates to, to self-awareness, um, self-management, uh, looking at what holistically makes you healthy. Yeah. I think the best way that I've learned to be self-aware is to invite other people to point out the things that I need to be self-aware of. And so they've got to a point now where they're pretty magnified. I know those things that are kind of um, – unbecoming of me or, or a little jarring in my personality because someone else has pointed them out to me and helped me navigate that. So now I've got to feel the responsibility of actually doing something with it. But inviting and giving two or three people permission to help you see those things and you to actually have a desire that you want to change those things, that they really matter and you want to do something about it. I know that um, when I run really, really hard for a long season, it, it wears on me pretty hard, and it affects my family. It affects my work performance. I know that. And so now I operate my calendar differently. Like I've learned over time. I don't get it right a lot. I know I don't. But I've had to have some people point out some things. Because in East Tennessee, in that small rural town where I was from, I was considered a 10 communicator. And then I get to elevation, right? And I'm like, I'm three. <laughs> like, like they're like, let me tell you what you're doing wrong. Yeah. You're doing this and you're doing this and you're doing this. Well, why don't you change this? And it was so helpful for me. And now I'm responsible for stewarding that, watching sure, game right, film, getting right. better. But somebody had to show me because I was completely unaware of it. I'm looking in the mirror and I can't see it. Mm. And so inviting some people in to tell you the things that you need to work on and then you being disciplined enough to work on them. That's good. All right, lightning round. Hey, what's the latest uh, book you've read or podcast or, or conversation that's really influenced you? Uh, there's a book out called Never Split the Difference. Mm. It's a book on negotiating uh, that's been really insightful for me on just handling 
critical conversations and just thinking differently. It's been cool. You uh, have been mandated for a perfect day off. What's a perfect day off look like to you? An early morning mount, early morning mountain bike ride uh, for sure. And then all my kids really well behaved and desiring to spend a day with me uh, for the afternoon. And like, they're just ready to go. And they just, the dream come true would be to hang out with me. That's awesome. Uh, what, what historical leader living dead would you love to have coffee with? I've had the privilege of building a great relationship with Bernice King, mm. uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s daughter. Mm. And it's made me want to spend time with Martin Luther King for sure. Wow. Final question. What's the next big dream for you? I really want to play a small part in solving a problem that everybody recognizes, but few are doing about, and that's truly connecting with millennial families. Mm -hmm. And I think that's through Faze Family Center. So if that scales in a significant way, I'm really excited. All right. Well, Frank Beeler, thanks for joining us today on Framework Leadership. Powerful stuff today. Thank you. It's been a privilege. Recently, Fortune published an article about the University of Alabama's head football coach, Nick Saban. If you're unfamiliar with college football, Coach Saban has led the University of Alabama to five national championships in the last nine years. In fact, Alabama has been ranked number one overall in 72 of the last 153 Associated Press Weekly polls. I'll tell you that, no other football team in history has dominated the college football landscape like the Crimson Tide has under the incredible leadership of Coach Saban. So how does Coach Saban consistently deliver championship after championship? The Fortune article outlines three key leadership principles from Coach Saban that I think all of us can use to consistently deliver strong results. First of all, he recognizes that success is not normal. You know, too many leaders think that their future success is somehow a given or somehow guaranteed just because, you know, they did something well in the past. What Nick Saban says is that success is not normal, and he makes his team practice every year like they've never won a championship. The second thing is uh, Coach Saban is willing to adapt to the situation. In other words, he understands the context. This past year, he surprised everyone in the national championship game by pulling his star senior quarterback out of the game and putting a rookie on the field. Now that decision was the key to winning the game that night. It's Coach Saban's willingness to throw out the game plan and adapt to the situation that consistently delivers results. And then finally, Coach Saban is committed to taking care of his team. 2016, when the Tide lost the national championship game to Clemson, Coach Saban had his athletic trainers run analytics on the players' fatigue levels at the end of the season. The results were off the charts. His team was absolutely exhausted before they had even gotten to the championship game. Coach Saban recognized that he had pushed them too hard and changed the training regimen so that the players were fresher going into the next season. You know, being a great leader takes intentionality. No one experiences continued success without putting in the time, putting in the effort to take it to uh, cultivate their organization to a new level. Uh, what Nick Saban teaches his team is that anyone can win one championship, but to create a culture of champions that continues to deliver results year after year, well, that takes intentionality. Hey, I'm Kent Ingle. Thanks for listening to Framework Leadership Podcast. To connect with Kent, visit kentingle.com 
Also make sure to follow him on Twitter at Kent Ingle and on Facebook at Kent.ingle. Thanks for listening to Framework Leadership.